Welcome to the Urban Insight Podcast from Suico. Hello and welcome to the Urban Inside podcast. My name is Colm O'Callaghan and with me is Suico's Head of Sustainability, Matthias Goldman. Very welcome, Matthias. Thank you. Our, our topic today is the world's healthiest building. Is there such a thing? There is not, and that's why it's so great to be here to discuss it, because there really should be. It's an important topic and it's very timely to discuss it now, because as we speak, uh, we see that the uh, world is preparing for hopefully the post-COVID recovery uh, period, where we have President Biden's Build Back Better as a sort of global mantra, really focusing on how we can do better with our buildings. And we're also all preparing to go back to work. We've been working from home for a long time. And when we come back to the offices and factories and schools, we are expecting more from our employers than we might have done before because we realize that we might not necessarily have to go there five days a week. Uh, so it's going to take some convincing to make us sure uh, and convinced that we want to go back. And I think health is a great part of that equation. Now, not all buildings are offices, of course. There are apartment buildings and people are living in buildings as well. So if we were to look at a healthy building, what is required to, to be the world's healthiest? I'm very glad that you're bringing that up because it's easy to equate a building with office. But we need this to be relevant for hospitals, for school, for residential areas, for where, we, where the elders live and so forth. Uh, and when we think health, many of us, especially when linked to, to housing, start thinking of indoor air quality. That's certainly one part of the equation, but it's really just one. It's about sound. It's about noise. It's also about whether this building encourages meetings with others, whether I feel comfortable there, whether I like to be there, or whether I want to get out of there as soon as possible. So there's so many different aspects to what a really healthy building really looks like. I think it's important to realize also as a middle-aged, white, uh, privileged man that what is a healthy building and a healthy surrounding is going to differ uh, based on your background, based on your gender, on your age, also your different uh, requirements uh, in life. We need to have a, a very wide representation when we sit down and discuss what healthy buildings look like. So if you were going to have a top five, like these five characteristics have to be there for, for a building to be healthy, what would you prioritize? Uh, I would be excited about starting zooming in on the building and look at the immediate surroundings. How do I get there? Is it comfortable for me to go biking there, for instance? That's a much better health uh, benefit than if I have to take the car to so, come So not there. the building itself, but rather how you get to the building. Yes, I would start there. And then, uh, of course, we need to zoom in on the building. But, but the, where is the building situated in terms of, of, of commuting? And where is it situated in terms of the immediate surroundings? Is there a nice park where I can go outside and have my lunch if it's sunny? And then we come to the building itself. And of course, the first daily meeting with the building is going to be something like the reception area or the main entrance. Do you feel welcome there? Do you feel seen and heard? Uh, is, is it something where, where I would like to be? That's, that's deferred on my wish list. 
And then I narrow in to what would be my office space or the classroom where I teach or the uh, the bed where I'm uh, at if I'm hospitalized and so forth. And then, then it's the immediate surroundings of the actual room and the noise that is or isn't there, the air quality that is or isn't there. Is there uh, some kind of green vegetation there? Is there a window where I can get sunlight if I want to? Can I hear the birds sing? Do I hear the uh, annoying humming of machines and air conditioning? All those factors. And then finally, uh, we know from this year of COVID, from working from home, that it's not just the hours we put in that count, but also the meetings around the coffee machine or the small breaks that we take. Uh, does this building encourage that? Does it find all these small spaces for informal meetings? That will be my top list. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening is saying, that's not my top list at all. And that's exactly what I'm aiming at, that there's going to be so many different definitions of, of uh, the healthy building. So it's going to be a tough job to be on the jury for this competition. I think it'll be a tough job just classifying it in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, why is it so important for us to try to create then the world's healthiest building? I mean, besides the competition to get people back to work, but since, as you've mentioned, we have buildings as schools or as hospitals or as living re- residential, why should we be trying to create healthy buildings? Well, uh, most of our time, in fact, up to around 90% of the time we spend indoors. So clearly, when we discuss health, uh, I think we're doing wrong if we narrow that down to try and run half an hour a day or try and be active in sports. So make sure you have a walk with your dog or whatnot. The most important part of health is always going to be where we spend the most of our time. And that is going to be those offices, those buildings, those residential areas. So we've got the big picture from Matthias Goldman, and he was looking at all buildings, whether it's a place of work, education or healthcare. But what about housing in particular? Four in ten people in Europe live in apartment buildings, for example. So we spoke to the World Health Organization. So my name is Natalie Rebel, and I am WHO's head for the work uh, on urban health. Rubble lives and breathes health and housing. She's been working with it for nearly 20 years. You know, WHO, one of the functions of WHO is to develop normative guidance. And in 2018, after several years, you know, of intense work, WHO launched those guidelines on housing and health. Uh, And these were the first guidelines in WHO that were targeting one specific sector, housing. So when we looked at the criteria, what we did, we we took like a mixed approach. On one hand, we looked at WHO's already existing guidance on characteristics that are important for the house, like water and sanitation, air quality, noise, um, some chemical products like asbestos or lead, where WHO actually had already developed a guidelines. Um, so we used those criteria that we knew were important for housing, and we took up those recommendations. But then we looked at some new areas, such as accessibility of housing, the risks of in, uh, indoor injuries, uh, indoor temperature, and also crowding. So these were new areas that we uh, that we looked at the scientific evidence and based on a solid review, right, of the evidence available, we came up with recommendations. Now, this being said, though, 
WHO did not develop, um, how can I say, a comprehensive right list of the housing criteria, because there are many more when you talk about housing. It's not only about the indoor environment, but also the surroundings, right, the neighborhood. So um, the guidelines are just, I would say, you know, a starting point. So the physical attributes of a building are important, but not just from a physical health perspective, also from a mental health perspective. To give some examples, if you uh, live in a, in a house that is uh, poorly ventilated, has bad smell um, or, um, you know, lacks water and sanitation, not only you will be affected physically, but also your mental health and well-being will be impacted. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. Use the example of noise, right? If you live in a place where you are constantly exposed to noise, uh, this will have an impact on your sleep, for example, and sleep quality and can have physical impacts like cardiovascular diseases. But it also can increase your levels of anxiety and depression. So it's definitely depending on how long you have been exposed to risks, all this can impact your, your mental health. But rubble doesn't end there. When it comes to mental health, there is the very important social dimension of housing. How do you build your houses in a way that encourages and improves social interactivity? Depending on how, where your house is going to be located, how close or how far it is with other houses, or when you live in multi-family houses, this will have an impact on your social cohesion, on your uh, social exchanges. So, for example, if you live in a place where you are very far away uh, from shops or you have, you know, very few uh, transport facilities, you can feel actually very isolated. Or if you live in a place where um, there's a high level of violence, for example, you would also be, you know, uh, feeling uh, more isolated or more concerned. So obviously the way a house is uh, shaped, where it's located, can increase or decrease the amount of social relations that we have with our neighbours. And this is particularly relevant for the elderly, for example, but also for young people. So really a healthy house is not just one without mould or with good ventilation. It's, a, it's one that's in the right location then. Absolutely. It's in the right location but also in the right constellation, right? Not too dense, uh, not too far distance, where you can have a a good exchange with your neighbours. So just take the example, if you live in a multifamily house, right, and you share common spaces, so a staircase or a basement or, you know, the the garden, um, if the house is well-maintained, you you will feel much more comfortable at at home or more secure at home. Um, Otherwise... um, you will feel that the shared spaces, right, will be also badly used by your neighbours. So there's like a sense of, you know, invasion. But let's take the concept of a healthy building one step further. Professor Masi Mohammadi works at Eindhoven University of Technology. My chair calls smart architectural technologies. So the name gives it away a little. She's looking at how smart technologies can help buildings be designed better. But that's just a part of it, because Professor Mohammadi is looking very closely at healthy buildings from a physical, social, but even emotional perspective. How does this building make me feel? The social, uh, psychological aspects of living, to me, are 
even more interesting than than uh, physical aspects. They intrigue me. Uh, you you need to stand in the shoes of the user to know what is actually actually what. When the design of a building, uh, yeah, somehow creates a stress for these people, or, or uh, some somehow uh, it has its emotional uh, effects on these people, that one is really to me a very interesting part of the story. It's difficult to grasp. And I love puzzles. So that's the very <laughs> reason. <laughs> I mean, the obvious things somehow bore me. Now, Masi Mohammadi's team are using technology to help understand specific groups of people, how they live and how buildings can be designed to give them healthier lives. One of the projects that they're working with right now is for people who are living with dementia. And I know that architecture is a powerful instrument which constantly affects on our emotion. And so uh, together with our colleagues from University of Groningen and an architectural office, we are detecting in a project this emotional behavior of the senior citizens with dementia. We try to understand when somebody is excited what kind of excitement is it? It's a kind of, uh, yeah, angry uh, reaction to some, towards something, or they are, they are just simply, uh, I mean, happy. And either this kind of emotions could be encouraged to be translated into behavior. For example, if somebody sees somebody else is working in the garden, would that one encourage a person with dementia to stand up or to decide to do the gardening? That is one of these scenarios that in one of PhD students of mine is, is carrying out in this nursing home to understand what is it actually the effect of, of what you are seeing. I want to know when we are designing our buildings, whether or not these people could find their way and what kind of cues, I mean, architectural cues, technological cues or other kind of cues would help them to find their room or a place that should, they should be. And when it comes to people with dementia, Mohammadi and her team are also using technology to test different ways to make buildings healthier and better for this group. We came up with this idea, what if the building uh, could act as a kind of caregiver for these people and could take care of these people? And uh, we gathered in-depth knowledge about the behavior of these people, the daily behavior of them, and how these the psychological mechanisms uh, are working. So we translate that one to a kind of guiding environment, meaning the home environment understands that these people for example, when it comes to the daily rhythm uh, that you uh, yeah, get up or, or go to bed, that one is one of these problems, you know. So to encourage that one, uh, we are using the smart technology, which actually somehow understands now is that bedtime. And, and so everything, the, the curtains will be closed and, and the music will be there and, and light uh, using the light sound and all this kind of uh, sensory effects 
headaches, we encourage them to get to bed or when they start their daily activities, for example, in the morning, it's um, breakfast time. So you, we, ha- we will have this projection of a kind of sandwich on the wall or in the floor system to remember them of, of their daily activities that they need to undertake and they, they need to do. In this way, the building somehow guides people through their daily lives. Mohammadi and her team have even been testing how to make people become more energy efficient without knowing it. In one test case, in a net zero building, they only allowed homes to be at a maximum of 22 degrees in the building. But the thermostats gave the users the impression that they could put their apartments up to 24 degrees. Now, these are all studies and many are far from complete and will take years before we can understand more. So what's happening today on the ground? What kind of real examples are there out there of healthy buildings? Is there one that could feasibly enter into the world's healthiest building contest? Well, in the UK, British land has been working with healthy buildings for some time. And like the others in this podcast, they are not looking at just the building itself, but the surrounding area also. In fact, British land buys campuses, large areas with several buildings and public spaces. Matt Webster is their Head of Portfolio Sustainability. Traditionally, the health and well-being and fitness industry has been really concerned with what we're putting into our bodies. And the whole bit around, I think there's a growing awareness with healthy buildings around what environments are we putting our bodies into. And that kind of changes your thinking about it. So back in, I think it was 2015, we did a piece of work with Happy City to set ourselves a set of well-being principles that would guide us in our designing and creation of public realm. And so we saw a really big opportunity of how to uh, influence health and well-being through the design and creation of that public space. And so there's a whole set of, of well-being principles that helps guide us there. And that could be for anything, making sure that it's easy to navigate that space so you don't get feelings of anxiety or stress, to ensuring that space is resilient in terms of its ecology and biodiversity, um, to create a sense of place, really. So places that matter, um, connecting kind of local communities, the people that visit that space to that place. And that can be through, um, you know, recognising local culture and history through to uh, uh, creating stewardship opportunities with having people look after sites or specific areas and things like that. There's lots of research to suggest that loneliness is not particularly good for our health and well-being. So how do we create a space that is more sociable? And that could be anything from uh, designing it so that, you know, strangers can maintain eye contact or having benches where there's places for people to retreat and, and spend time with each other. And British land has really adopted these well-being principles. One of the first examples of a location where they used it was Paddington Central, right in the heart of London. Um, it is a collection of office buildings, really. It's an 11-acre kind of mixed-use campus. Uh, it sits next to the Grand Union Canal and Paddington Station in central London. And so that area went from a kind of grey, what we would call a, a business park area, to a green, vibrant, healthier 
public realm. So some of the key interventions and the most visual ones were around the planting and the greenery we were able to introduce there. And we've really increased this, um, the access to, to nature within that site. Uh, the site was quite lucky, it already had a good amphitheatre, so a real social kind of focus for the centre of the campus. Uh, that's been enlivened further. There's a really engaging events programme that's run there. So it's not about, it's not just about the design, but it's also about how you operate and manage those spaces. Um, the, one of the entries to the site was under quite a dark bridge that was cluttered with street furniture, was congesting people into a bottleneck you know, at peak times. Uh, and so we're able to clean that out and introduce quite an innovative piece of artwork there. Uh, Alan Turing, who was famous in the Second World War for the Enigma Code, uh, he's actually a local resident at one point of Paddington. And so we've done a piece of artwork that digitally puts up a poem about his life in this quite dark uh, underpassage uh, and just made that area feel a lot nicer to move through, um, a lot more convenient for people, a lot more intuitive to pass through rather than this cluttered street furniture space that we inherited. But British Land is also working in the Canada Water area in London right now. This one's even bigger and more ambitious. Canada Water is a is a master plan for large-scale regeneration of, um, a, of an area of London. The master plan for this will introduce new office space, new retail space, putting around three and a half thousand new residential homes and large areas again of public pedestrianized public realm um, so new parks and um, new high streets new avenues there's already quite a unique nature of the site and so with our redevelopment and regeneration we're aiming to increase the the biodiversity and the econo- ecological richness um, it sounds to me like a lot of the healthy buildings that you're talking about are, are healthy because of what's outside the building um, as well. Yes, I think, uh, well, it's both are equally important. The, the actual design and the construction of the building, really important from a net zero perspective. And we're aiming for well certification on, on all of the Canada Water buildings. So there's views out, there's making sure that daylight can penetrate as far into the building as possible. There's active design, making sure that the building's intuitive to move around, but you promote kind of active movement as well as the vertical transportation in in terms of lifts or escalators. So making sure that staircases are open and visible and people are encouraged or or nudged to to move around the building um, physically as well. So what's your guess as to what... Looking in the crystal ball, I don't know, 10 years down the road, Canada Water, the project is is built and up and running. What sort of an area is that going to be like then when it's all done? It's going to be a place where I'd like to live. Uh, It's going to have a a lovely street scene in terms of active facades. It's going to be really permeable and easy to move through. Um, There's going to be the right balance between private transport, public transport. It's going to be very green and lush. It's going to be very social, that there'll be lots of places to sit and meet and greet. Um, there'll be high levels of trust. Neighbours will, will get on and be encouraged to take part in their communities. Uh, it'll be easy to move round on bicycle um, and there'll be lots to do there. So all of the interviewees in this podcast have talked about the big picture when it comes to healthy buildings. It's not just about asbestos or about light or air. There are a lot of different stakeholders and players that need to be involved. So who's responsible for healthy buildings? Natalie Rubble at the World Health Organization again. Well, it's, it's, I would say it's a combination, you know. 
First, the public health sector has a key role to play as the health sector will on one hand provide the evidence, right, of why housing is a determinant for health. It will also allow to develop certain amount of tools, as I was saying, policies, etc. But certainly the health sector is only one piece of the cake. I mean, architects, urban planners are actually the true, if I can say, public health officials, because the way you shape the houses, the, sh the way you build your cities, um, you know, the way you do planning is a public health measure. So there needs to be a much stronger, I would say, involvement of all these other sectors um, in shaping healthy housing. But in addition, you also need to have a larger amount of community involvement. So you need the tenants, you need the owners, you know, the tenants associations to be somehow linked in into the discussions, as well as community members of informal settlements, for example, who are crucial players to give information about what works, what does not work, you know, what priorities to set. And only if you have all those stakeholders on board, you can actually steer in the, in the best way your, your policymaking process. So in a perfect world, you'd have an urban planner who'd spent maybe 10 years of their previous career as a public health official or vice versa. Yeah, well, I'll just give you an example. When I started working on housing, we did a large survey in the European region. So we worked in a select number of cities and we, we looked at the housing conditions, we looked at the health impacts. And one of our counterparts within the Ministry of Health uh, responsible for this topic was actually by training an architect. So interestingly, you had, you know, an architect that was in charge of healthy housing within a Ministry of Health. And I think this is a, a fantastic example to show that public health is actually, you know, belongs to a large variety of disciplines. We're back now with Matthias Goldman, Head of Sustainability at Suico. Matthias, we've listened now to the podcast and we hear that some of the people are saying that, you know, healthy buildings, it's not the sole responsibility of public health officials, but rather urban planners, architects, designers. What role do you see? I mean, how, how do we, in, in ensuring healthy buildings, how do we get this to work together? What's, what's your view on this? I loved to hear that, partially because obviously it gives us a lot of work at Sveco, uh, because we as consultants can find all these different disciplines that can help create a building and a surrounding that's truly healthy in all the different aspects. But mostly because I'm a great believer in 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 the dialogue with people and asking people, what do you prefer? How do you want it? What makes you feel the best and what makes you perform the best? And uh, we cannot solve uh, healthy buildings by just having different kinds of instruments and putting down different numbers in Excel files. This is a great opportunity to have a profound discussion. What do we really mean by healthy buildings? It's tricky, though, to get all these different disciplines to work together. I mean, how do we go about that? Sometimes I feel that people almost try to evade their responsibility by saying that we need to get all kinds of different dis disciplines together. But in this case, it's true. But by starting by asking those who are actually in the building, what are their main concerns? We can also narrow down the different disciplines that we really need to engage in order to get the healthy building the way the users define it. I mean, it's tricky though. I still think you, you have a public health official who comes in with one remit and is thinking in one way, 
But long before that, maybe you've got a developer or a designer who's maybe thinking in, a, in another way entirely. And it's it's getting all of those to match. Is I mean, is there a solution or is there a way of making that work? I'm thinking that the public health official uh, are always, they're always going to make sure that the building is healthy enough. There's thresholds that need to be uh, adhered to in terms of air quality, noise and so forth. But we're striving for something altogether different. We're striving for the really healthy building that really helps you lead a healthy life. So there, the official functions are not so relevant because this is way beyond any legislation. And that's where uh, this becomes tricky, just as you say, but it also becomes easier because it's not something we're going to go out and measure. It's something we're going to sit down and discuss. So if we look 20 years down the line, I mean, what, what is that going to be? 2041? Oh, 2041. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like it feels like a long way away. So in 2041, if we look ahead, what will our cities look like? What will the buildings that we're living and working in, in look like? Uh, so the boring part of this is that they will basically look the same. Most of the buildings are going to be the buildings that we know from centuries back. There's going to be differences, though. And I think one of the differences is exactly this, that we realize that we cannot work with sustainability issues one by one. And we cannot work with buildings on an individual scale. We need to sort of zoom out a little bit and make sure that all these sustainability goals that we've decided as a society to meet and all the different parts of our life, be it home, office, commuting, all of these are interconnected. And I'm thinking that we're getting wiser fairly quickly there. So when we, in 2041, look back, we'll see that we managed to go from piecemeal to whole uh, solutions where we see all of our lives as, as one and we see health as something way beyond just, for instance, noise or air quality. Matthias Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Urban Inside podcast from Suico. If you have any questions or feedback, please mail to urbaninsight at suicogroup.com. Thanks for listening. Music